Well, before I begin, let me say on behalf of both of us what a tremendous pleasure and privilege it is to come up here. And uh, I express again publicly our gratitude for what uh, John Burns and Colin Hart do in this institute. And we feel uh, a tremendous affinity with, uh, with their ideals. Uh, the topic I have now is the biblical framework of the family. And I want to divide this into three sections. First, the urgency of the subject. Second, the implausibility of the subject. And third, the rationale of the subject. The urgency, the implausibility, and the rationale. Now, about three weeks ago, I had the privilege of being invited to speak to a group of postgraduate postgraduate international students at London School of Economics. And my subject then was how philosophies influence your studies. And apart from being very impressed by the people who were there, I had uh, someone who's just six weeks out of the China Republic sitting in front of me, working on a PhD, and that was quite an experience in itself. Uh, but apart from that, I had an overwhelming sense of the irony of this whole situation. What do I mean by that? Well, here are these uh, students, some of the brightest from the third world, we would say, uh, in quotes, coming to the West for an education or the completion of an education, when, and here's the irony, the West itself, despite its, its uh, remarkable heritage academically and technically and so on, is in a state not merely of complete intellectual bankruptcy, intellectual bankruptcy, but also of profound social crisis. There's a great irony here, that we should be the center uh, to which these uh, dear friends of ours come, drawn as by a magnet, because we have the answers when in reality we have none. I'm talking about intellectually. And the irony, of course, is, is compounded by the all too apparent triumph, as we might, might call it, of the West recently, in very recent history, over the East, uh, the end of the Cold War, the demise uh, uh, and confusion now of the, the communist world. Now, I want to focus on this because if I was simply to address this subject in terms of the biblical framework and, and look at scripture, it seems to me we would miss the main point which we have to grasp, and that is what moment in history are we living in within which to recover this biblical framework of the family? And my, my point is this. We must understand very, very clearly, and it is both alarming on the one hand, and yet at the, at the same time tremendously challenging this moment of great opportunities I should try to point out, we are at a position in which our culture is both intellectually and socially bankrupt. All of this is summed up in this expression that we now find quite familiar in the, in the, uh, in the press and so on on television, postmodernism. Now, you've all heard this. Let me just explain very simply what it is and then illustrate this in three ways. The expression postmodernism refers to the modernist experiment. The modernist experiment is just a, a way of describing the historical phenomenon that occurred in the 18th century when there was a challenge to our Christian heritage and the philosophers of the time, either deists or atheists, argued that God was completely irrelevant. That in particular Christianity was completely irrelevant, and worse than that, not just irrelevant, actually a hindrance to progress. <coughs> and that what would lead us on into this utopian future, which they quite seriously imagined would arrive in due course, was science. That if we simply attended to the laws of science and forgot about this vague, uh, supernatural, uh, invisible, uh, seemingly uh, uninterested, supernatural uh, 
realm. This was the challenge of the 18th century. Uh, one writer has put it like this. The issue in the 18th century was quite simply this. Shall Europe be Christian or shall it not? Shall Europe be Christian or shall it not? Now the answer, dear friends, is obvious, is it not? It shall not. We are living in the post-Christian culture of the West. But what has happened now to this post-Christian culture? And here you come to the post-modernist concept. Because what philosophers have, uh, have realized with increasing clarity is that if you reject the Christian God, they wouldn't express it like this. I'm putting it in, our, in my own uh, terms, within my own framework. Once you try to look for answers to the whole of reality and say, what are we? Where have we come from? Where are we going, etc.? What is this creature called man? What is the purpose of life? There are no answers. Now, we must, we must understand, this is a very deliberate step that they have taken. It isn't as if they've sort of wandered into it and are expressing it vaguely and no one understands what's going on. They understand very clearly. And it refers to three things in particular. The first is the philosophical, that in philosophy there are, on, there are no answers. In a sense, you could, you could uh, say existentialism. In the earlier part of the century, you think of the textbook which our children are reading in schools, uh, Camus, uh, the French writer, Sartre. That was simply the first round, if you like, of this expression that there is no answer, that life is completely meaningless. And where we, we have come to now is to the, as it were, the second round, let's put it like this, the final round. Now, now there is no um, possibility of, of error. We have come to the end. As one of their writers has put it, it is nihilism, nihilism, that means no meaning, with a smile. Nihilism with a smile. Secondly, that's the philosophical, there is the ideological. In that great uh, expectation generated by the 18th century that we were going to have all our answers, the answers didn't seem to come, economically in particular. Society continued to be very unequal, very unjust. And so you had the spawning of these huge ideologies, these vast ideologies which have cost us so expensively. You think, for example, of the Russian Revolution and, uh, and its control simply of the Soviet Union. Sixty million have died since 1917. That's not to mention any of the others. And so now, many of the intellectuals in the West looking, as Mugridge did, you remember, in his, his, his youth to such a degree that he and his wife, when they were first married, even made their home in Moscow, going to the promised land. Ah, it's ridiculous, you see. And there is this realization that ideology has no answers. There is no ideology. Socialism is no answer. Capitalism is no answer. There's some people think so and so on. But there's this recognition that there are no answers. And uh, as, we, as we look at this, we must, we must realize the, the predicament uh, of modern man. Finally, finally, we have come to the point where there is this almost universal realization that perhaps science, after all, far from being our savior, may in fact be the very agent for our annihilation. This is, this is the moment to which we have come. And postmodernism, that's, that's not the whole meaning of postmodernism, but it is this expression of no answers. Let me just read to you from um, Brian Appleyard, this is a book just come out in this country, Understanding the Present. Here is a contemporary writer who writes in the national press. This is not, quote, academic. This is not something that the common person can't understand. Here he's describing the situation in which we is. And the, these are just five brief uh, comments, sentences from the, from the book. He says, on the maps provided by science, you see, this is the, the way forward, yeah, Everything is going to be described scientifically. Everything must be described scientifically. On the maps provided by science, we find everything except ourselves. 
That is a brilliant statement. We find everything. We can tell you about electricity. We can tell you about the atoms and so on and so on and so on. Who is man? Continuing, there must be a real danger that liberal society, having triumphed economically and politically, there you are, you see the end of the Cold War, may now decline, he says, beneath the weight of its own spiritual indecision. This is a man who is not a Christian. Right? He's not a Christian commentator. He sums it up perfectly. Thirdly, the pessimism, anguish, skepticism, and despair of so much 20th century art and literature are expressions of the fact that there is nothing big, big in quotes, worth talking about anymore. There is no meaning to be elucidated. Fourthly, the fact that the democracies constantly seem to have a crisis in their schools, here we, we, uh, we are ourselves meeting in just such an institution, a crisis in their schools is important. It is a symptom of a crucial uncertainty about what there is to teach, about whether there is anything to teach. Do you not weep? Isn't this pathetic? And finally, he concludes, we are clearly in a decadent phase and, I think, a terminal one. That's Brian Appleyard. Uh, Fukuyama, whose book became a bestseller, The End of History and the Last Man, as it's called, is written like this. And again, one has to be impressed by the, the uh, insight that these people have had to the predicament of postmodernist man. He says, the incoherence in our current discourse on the nature of rights springs from a deeper philosophical crisis. See, that's what we're focusing on, this philosophical crisis concerning the possibility of a rational understanding of man. There he says it. The incoherence in our current discourse on the nature of rights. In other words, here we're talking about the rights, human rights and the bills of rights and so on, and the ensuring of a of a society worldwide which will be just, which will afford to each individual those rights that each individual deserves. This is the, this is the, uh, the concept. And he says, there is an incoherence at the very foundation of this discussion. What is it? A rational understanding of man has still not been uncovered. A rational understanding. In other words, who is man? Now, it's quite clear in the discussion, which I can't read in detail to you here in this, in this section, he, he poses the ultimate question. And this has been uh, poignantly expressed in the film Blade Runner by Ridley Scott, which if you've never seen, do get a hold of it. It's a brilliant philosophical expression of this plight of modern man, the postmodernist man. Just to show you, for example, just to give you an illustration, of this third thing that I mentioned, you know, that science is actually going to be our, our, uh, our uh, uh, downfall rather than our solution. Uh, he, he cites the, the film, the, the, the story, it's a sort of cops and robbers type situation, you know, the old familiar story. But it's situated in Los Angeles and, and the rain pours down consistently throughout the whole movie. We have it ruined our environment. But the issue is that uh, Fukuyama draws attention to here is how do we distinguish man from animals? If everything is simply material, how do we distinguish between man and animals? Today, he says, everybody talks about human dignity, but there is no consensus as to why people possess it. Modern man, I'm going on, another quotation, sees that there is a continuum from the living slime, as Nietzsche put it, all the way up to himself. Autonomous man, rationally able to follow laws he has created for himself, was reduced to a self-congratulatory myth. But the argument will not stop there, for how does one distinguish between higher and lower animals? Who can determine what in nature suffers? Indeed, why should the ability to experience pain Will the possession of higher intelligence become a title to superior worth? In the end, why does man have more dignity than any part of the natural world, from the most humble rock to the most distant star? And let's say at this point very carefully that the problem in the world is not nature. 
The problem in the world is man. And yet we do not know who man is. This is the depth to which we have, have come. And I've, you've, some of you uh, heard me read from um, John Roberts's brilliant book called The Triumph of the West, which is not a triumph in the sense of uh, a victorious parade kind of triumph, uh, but rather just the, um, the success of technology from the West throughout the whole world today. And he says in chapter 12, a sense of decline. Since 1900, a great dream has faded. To many in the West, the civilization appears to have gone wrong. Cultural self-criticism and self-questioning have seemed to lead to cultural self-destruction. And then later in that same page, he says, there seems to be little left for the educated to believe in. Christianity's decay as a persuasive intellectual system has been followed by its rival Marxism. Both still have their churches of believers, sure of their ritual and dogma, but, but the hungry sheep look up and more and more they are not fed. Now this is the dilemma uh, philosophically. Technologically, uh, Neil Postman is familiar to many of you as the author of a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He's now written a book called Technopoly, which just came out last year. Technopoly. And what he means by technopoly is this, that in all societies up until the late 18th century, there, w there, there, was, there was a tool-using culture throughout the world, tool-using, with different levels of sophistication, but essentially tool-using. And the dominant aspect of life in those cultures was religion. Technocracy began about then. Think of the Industrial Revolution through the 19th century uh, and all that has followed technologically. In that context, he says, religion and culture, and particularly technology, have been living in a sort of um, tension, unresolved tension, where people were still religious, going to church, etc., still having belief in a divine being, etc., etc., but all the time not quite sure how this was going to be maintained within a culture that was moving more and more towards what we call being secularized, where the idea of, of spiritual re uh, realities exists no, no longer. Now, his point is, we have arrived in technopoly. That is a situation where the machine dominates and in which religion has completely evaporated in terms of being anything practical into our lives. Now, this, this overwhelming of our life in, by technology, I'll come back to later today, but it was poignantly expressed for us all, I think about a week ago, uh, I read about this, this film just recently put out by Walt Disney called The Program. Have any of you seen it? Uh, well, when it was shown in the United States, um, released in October, the film describes a college football hero who, to show that he's really macho, goes and lies down on the white line in the middle of a very busy th uh, uh, road. Lies down on the, on the white line. Of course, he's, he is, uh, is safe. And then Time magazine describing this says, the macabre scene in the film touched off a horrifying parody. Two boys copied the stunt, lay down on a two-lane highway in Pennsylvania, were struck by a pickup truck in the early hours of October the 16th. Uh, Michael Shingledecker, 18, died instantly. His friend Dean Bartlett, 17, was critically <coughs> injured. Later the same day, another young man was hit by a car and critically hurt when he followed suit on Long Island. A few days later, uh, Walt Disney Company announced it would delete the scene from the movie. Too late for some. But what I want to illustrate, just with a little cameo, is that here we are in, in different parts of the world, and doubtless the same thing might happen anywhere else in the world where this film is shown, an innocent sort of film, a Walt Disney film. And the power of the media of technology is so great that we can even lose our sense of rational determination. That's not something you do, lie down on a white line. Would you like to do that? The power of the media. To take another... I'm sure you'll feel this is too trivial, but it, it has spoken volumes to me personally. When we first went to live in this little village in Gretham, uh, the A325, which passes uh, by our, our gate, was moderately busy. I mean, we were conscious that uh, 
There was noise from cars, but uh, there were no tailbacks and all this kind of thing. Today, the volume of traffic is so great that when you emerge from the house, fortunately the manor has got a very solid walls and you, you're not disturbed inside, mercifully. But if you step out the door, it's like being in a hurricane. We now have the A3 bypass on our other side. So when we go out the front door, there we see the traffic with all the noise streaming by. And this is progress. I just use these two cameos, you see, to show the dilemma. And this is the sort of thing that Postman is saying. We are being overwhelmed technologically. When you add the two together, which Postman doesn't do, and that is when you add the philosophical dilemma that we don't know the difference between machines, or as uh, Blade Runner puts it, replicants, and human beings, and you're not sure right to the very end if Harrison Ford himself isn't a uh, replicant. This is the mystery of the film. This is the puzzle of the film. How do you know? What is the difference between a machine and a human being? And when you add that philosophical dilemma to, to technological dilemma, you have a problem. Now, just recently, I came across, thirdly, um, this review of another book just come out in the States by a man by the name of Edward Lutwak, L-U-T-T-W-A-K, called The Endangered American Dream. The Endangered American Dream. And here I come to the economic overwhelming. And he says here, this is uh, George Walden's uh, review in the Daily Telegraph, the 19th of October. Mr. Lutwak's thesis is that on present trends, his country could resemble a third world nation by the year 2020. <coughs> Did you all hear me? <laughs> could resemble a third world country by the year 2020. Whether, you accept, whether or not you accept this argument, there's no doubt that in Europe's relations with America, economic self-interest rather than political sentiment will in future be the name of the game. This is in relation to uh, Clinton's famous words that this particular relationship, friendship relationship between the States and England is now at an end. But the, the bit I want you to notice in this is how very clearly the relationship between the moral values of the culture and the economic product of the culture are related to one another. So he says, the end of the Cold War combined with technological advance is doing away with the old concept of world politics with its grand designs, diplomatic waltzes, territorial imperatives, etc. Warfare in future will be more about hidden trade barriers than ambushes. And then he goes on and says, now if that is the case, is America ready to to face that new conflict, that secret, that sort of hidden, that non-military conflict, the economic conflict, the geopolitical conflict, the geoeconomic conflict. And then he says this, the connection between economics and cultural and moral values is crucial. Mr. Ludwig emphasizes, in Anglo-Saxon societies generally, and American in particular, there is a clear relationship between low savings ratios, a readiness to borrow for frivolous purposes, debt, the increasing disinclination to make long-term long -term investments, and, note, the decay of the Protestant Calvinist ethic. Continuing, the individualist commercial ethic was fine so long as it was balanced by a sense of duty to the family and the community and by self-restraint. When all that is junked, as it patently has been in the America of junk bonds and junk families, high personal indebtedness, $70 million salaries, and an aversion to the accumulation of capital through long-term effort, all you have left is naked individualism and a fast-buck economy trying, quote, to practice capitalism without capital. I think that's a brilliant <laughs> phrase. Brilliant phrase. Now, there are lessons here, he says, for our own idolaters at the shrine of the pure free market. And the article ends... Unless we recognize that geoeconomics is taking over and respond rather more foresightedly than President Clinton and Warren Christopher have just done, God help America and the rest of us too. Now, what am I doing in this rather long introduction? How does this relate to the family? What I'm trying to say is this, that we are living in this culture. And to discuss the family as if we can, you know, just sort of 
discuss the biblical framework in Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 and verse 28, and John chapter 2 and so on, Ephesians chapter 5, without realizing that we are living in this culture, not the culture of the 18th century or the 15th century and so on. It seems to me we haven't realized the enormous challenge that there is before us and, simultaneously, the enormous opportunity. Would we but see it? Could we see a revival, a renewal, a reformation that was really fundamental within the church as against so much of the superficial renewal that we've seen today? If we could see that, we would see a speaking into an enormous vacuum in which, for example, John Major's recent statements are perhaps the most uh, interesting comment. A recovery of traditional values? What are these, pray? Now, one could go on and on with more harrowing stories uh, that uh, surround us about the crisis in our culture, the Bulger case, for example, and on the other side of the coin, you know, just the sheer... Uh, frivolousness and uh, ridiculousness, not just of the newspapers that do this, uh, Lady Dies Leotards, if I could uh, call it that. Um, I mean, this is pathetic. This is a culture which is quite pathetic. It has obviously lost its way. As um, Appleyard says, this uh, culture is in a decadent phase and, I think, a terminal one. Now, I don't say this to make anyone feel pessimistic rather to be realistic and then understand that there are answers within the biblical framework for the family, but for anything, which uh, are the only solution to this, this need uh, and this crisis. The vacuum is all too evident, but human need, how often is it the case, I wonder just for us sitting here, how often it is human need that becomes the first steps towards divine salvation. Now, what do I mean, secondly, by the implausibility of the subject? The implausibility is this, that for many people today, particularly younger people, the fact that marriage and the family are so evidently in a mess, the increase in the divorce rate, for example, with such a reality, this is how they view the whole thing. The problem is seen to lie at the very point where we think the solution lies. We think the solution lies in recovering, to use this phrase of, uh, of John Majors, but we must carefully distinguish ourselves from that, uh, the, um, the recovery of traditional values. We think it's in the recovery of the family, the biblical family, right? They look at this mess and they say, who wants that? And so, accordingly, sleeping together, partners, etc., etc. Now, you see, if we, if we are not careful, we can fall into Major's mistake, and that is see purely a, a cultural problem which can be attended to by just a readjustment, a slight readjustment. Of our, of our value system. And I think what we have to see is that this dilemma, as with all the other social dilemmas, for example, the increase in, in crime, is related to something very, very profound. It is the loss of that worldview which was the means for the establishing of our culture back there in the, in the past millennium. It, our culture didn't just emerge with its democracy and so on and so forth its high view of the individual, its human rights, etc., etc., uh, its hospitals, its schools. Just by chance, these folk who've come from the third world came, ostensibly, to a Christian culture, didn't they? They're attending schools like Emmanuel. Thank God for the name, just the name for what it testifies. But our forefathers back there in the foundation of Oxford and Cambridge there in the 13th, 14th century, all of the colleges were named with Christian names, practically. And we must realize that this issue is not a small issue, in other words. It's not just a surface problem. It's a fundamental philosophical problem, also a technological problem, and ultimately maybe even to an economic problem, 
But we have to make some choices which are going to be very, very painful to us, but which are of, within which we have such convictions in respect to God's priority and his words teaching that we stand. Here I stand. I can do no other. Now this brings me to the, the third area. If, um, the, if many people sense this implausibility, just look what's happening to marriage. Why, why would you ask me to go into all of that? We have to have a very good rationale. What is our rationale? What is the biblical framework? But not only that, why do we stand by it? as against some other system, for example, polygamy, which, strange though it may seem, is becoming popular to some with their, their acceptance of, of Islam. For if we are to see a reversal of the trends that surround us, there has to be a recovery, not just of empty phrases like, uh, like majors, but a persuasion of an entire population that Christianity, the Bible alone, is able to answer our postmodernist need. Are we equipped to do that? Now, I'm speaking on the family, but the point I'm making is, are you able, you individually able, to stand on the basis of truth? This is not just a pragmatic alternative. This is the truth. That is the fundamental issue for all of us to consider today. Is it really true? Now, to put it slightly differently, the biblical framework for the family <coughs> is an issue of truth in the sense that it is something ontological. By that I just mean, it sounds like a complicated word, forgive me, uh, but just that our very being, that's what the word means, ontos, our very being testifies to this because we were created not just to be male and female, just mankind, but we were created for family relationship, whether married or single. We were created within and for family relationship. This is the context to understand human reproduction and human development. It's not just a possibility, uh, an alternative. It is what God has told us <laughs> is the structure, the structure, the ontological structure of the reality within which we live, that we are created in the image of God. <clears throat> now this is where I come to John chapter 2, which uh, was read for us earlier, and the marriage at Cana. Now I don't want to suggest that this is the sole meaning of that uh, extraordinary event. The first miracle note, uh, it makes it quite clear this was his first miracle. I don't want to suggest that the whole meaning is, is uh, encapsulated in this, but I do believe there is a significance in the first miracle having been performed at a marriage because there is a, a restatement, if you like, an endorsement of what God has created at the very beginning. That is, that the image of God, now so twisted, so broken, so old and torn, so old and, and useless, is going to be recovered. And the new in his coming, in Christ's coming, in his work for us, his salvation, is going to make possible the recovery of the original. That is, the image of God as found in the original creation. And so Jesus is, as it were, giving us this underlining of the importance of marriage and the family there in that first, first miracle. He reaffirms the basic hum unit of human society and hence of the family. Now what does this mean in, in specifics? First of all, that the biblical view is, and again, not just that this is how our society did it and we like it this way, but this is how it was constructed. And therefore, this is the only way that it will really work. First of all, one man, one woman, till death separates us. For a lifelong and exclusive relationship. Note, one man, one woman for a lifelong and exclusive relationship. The positive charter, if you like, that is 
is uh, in, in, uh, included in this is not, of course, the sexual relationship. The positive charter that is included there in the beginning, that first uh, creation of man and woman uh, for each other, is not the sexual. The focus is not upon the sexual. It is a critically important aspect, a delight and a joy and very important in the becoming one flesh. But evidently, from the whole nature of what man is, I mean mankind, it is the whole relationship what is included in the, in the expression, a love relationship. And so you have this uh, imitating, if you like, the image reflecting, reflecting the character of the Trinity. Now, I have a, uh, a, uh, a diagram here which is taken from one of Dr. Schaefer's books, and it shows something of the wonder of, of all of this, and in particular, how we are to respond to that, that question raised, for example, in Blade Runner, and by Fukuyama. What is the difference between man and the rest of, of creation? Now, in terms of the nature of God, God is both infinite and personal. Personal meaning not my personal God. That's how some people have understood it. Personal in the sense that God's nature is personal. God is love. God is holy. The members of the Trinity, all included within that, personal. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A love relationship before the creation of anything. Now, Dr. Schaefer's point in this diagram is to show that on the side of infinity, we, man, are with, are to be identified with all creatures. Man, animals, plants, molecules, planets, etc. We are all, in a sense, no different. We are all creatures. We are finite creatures. But on the side of our personality, of the personal, man, the line here, is between man and the rest of what has been created. And this shows the distinction. Now I want to say this very, very carefully. Outside of this framework, this conceptual framework, there is no adequate basis for the value of man, mankind. And hence, no basis for the understanding of marriage. Because the essence of man is that man was made to be the image of God. Male and female created he they. So that love relationship between the couple, Adam and Eve, in the first instance, and then in every family subsequently, that love relationship is reflecting the relationship between the members of the Trinity. This is the high calling of man. This is the high calling of marriage and of the family, that within the family there is the possibility of an expression of the nature, the very nature of God. Now, in terms of the negative charter that's involved in this, of course, there is a rejection of all promiscuity. Both heterosexual promiscuity, and we must say this very carefully, as well as homosexual promiscuity. And then very carefully, all polygamy. Now, it's, it's one of the striking things about a Christian civilization is that it takes a polygamous culture in some context and turns it into a monogamous culture. This has happened, for example, amongst the Alka Indians and other Indians in the Amazon Basin. This is an inevitable consequence of taking Christianity as one's basis for life, that there is a movement towards a monogamous relationship. It's absolutely vital and critical, and you find it reflected in the New Testament, not spelled out in great detail, but very quietly and very gently. And this, of course, raises the question, how is this to be achieved, within what time span, and so on. But Paul is quite clear about this, that those who are to have positions of leadership in the church are to move from the one to the other, that they may not be in a polygamous relationship. The elders, uh, the presbyteroi, are to be the husbands of one wife only. And you have, you see, something being recovered here, which is original. And of course, this is very much uh, uh, related to the whole problem that many people ask us about. Why was there polygamy in the Old Testament? Why did David have so many wives and Solomon and so on? And you see, what we have to see is that there was such a decline as a result of the fall, of the sinfulness of, of mankind, that such a, um, such a structure became... Uh, acceptable within God's people, which was not, in fact, the ideal. And God steadily was drawing 
his people away from that. And this is the big step that we find in the New Testament as a result of the giving of his spirit, the coming of the Savior and the giving of his spirit, that now there is this possibility. It's the new wine as against the old wine. It's the, the possibility of the, the last being better than what was before. So that, that is another aspect, the, the negative charter, the rejection of all promiscuity, including polygamy. And then also um, what is excluded, I think, and here I can only touch on it and we need to talk about it more in detail, is a rejection of premarital sex and what I've called postmarital sex. What I mean by premarital sex, obviously, is that what is commonly practiced, what came to light in the uh, case uh, the date rape case involving the King's College student, that this is something which Christians just have to exclude. It is not something which, which can be practiced in the church because the calling is for the fulfillment of our sexuality only within a married relationship. Only within a married relationship. A relationship which is permanent, as, as I said earlier. And then in relation to postmarital. Um, sexual experience, I obviously mean um, divorce. Now, many people are divorced, and I must be careful as I say this, uh, but we must be quite sure that the New Testament does not hold, divi uh, hold up di divorce as an ideal. It's, it's something to be resisted, and, um, and the church should be made quite clear about that, especially in our own context. That it is possible, it's allowable, only, if you like, in the most extreme circumstances, which historically in the Protestant churches have been two. First of all, adultery, and then on the basis of an a fortiori argument, that is that here is something worse in a way, that is desertion. So adultery and desertion. Adultery, the unfaithfulness within the relationship, desertion, the actual breaking of the relationship. And so you have Paul describing the second in his letter to the Corinthians and saying, if a person becomes a Christian, in, the, in a married relationship, if the other partner deserts, refuses to continue, uh, that, that uh, other, the spouse, is free. Now, drawing to a close, two, two points. There is no other social uh, organization which should take precedence over the family. Either culturally or politically, and even within the church. It is the original institution created by God. And where it is not respected, a whole society suffers. So TV, sport, we'll come to some of these things later today, uh, education, uh, business, career, etc. And as I said, even the church, with all its programs and so on, must not take priority over the institution of the family. It is that institution. Not that these are not legitimate institutions, <coughs> like, for example, schools, uh, hospitals, uh, political um, affiliations, and so on and so forth. Um, not that they aren't legitimate, but they are not to take precedence over the family. The family is both the original and the most important social ex uh, organization in all human experience. The best designed organization, if you like, in all history. Now, finally, the fact that uh, marriage and the family are all these things, that as we look at the biblical framework and we see the elevated station, if you like, the status that is given to marriage, the fact that this is true and of central importance for the whole of human society does not mean that either marriage or the family is going to be easy. And here is a great uh, dilemma that, that faces us. And I think this is part of the, the problem uh, that the culture has as it looks at marriage. It's expecting something just to work quite easily. Just a new relationship, and then that's going to be it. In fact, it's quite the contrary. We run into, in microcosm, the same struggle within the family that the whole society in macrocosm is facing day by day within a fallen world. And how do we deal with that? How do we deal with sin? It's a tremendous challenge uh, to sanctification. As Luther said, uh, this, this is the proper context within which sanctification is to be worked out. Not the isolating oneself in some building in a monastery, as he was. This is the true test 
of sanctification. And just as uh, the Proverbs uh, puts it, righteousness exalts a nation, so righteousness exalts a family. There is no other way. And righteousness is costly. And that leads me naturally to my second talk this afternoon, the responsibility of parents. In the end, it is not simply a matter of truth, though that, as I've said, is absolutely vital to overcome this postmodernist confusion and also the plausibility problem, to be able to give a reason, like I did with that diagram, to show the value of, of both the individual human being and marriage, and hence the family. In, in a sense, the truth, this, this truth that has to be recovered is the sine qua non for the church. In other words, if we do not have this, we will not have any impact upon the culture. But, my point is, in conclusion, it is not just a matter of truth. It's also a matter of sanctification of what Schaeffer called true spirituality. That's where we rest the whole issue of the biblical framework of the family. Now, I don't know if we've got much time. Questions? For questions? Five minutes? Five minutes? No. What we're aiming at, let me just quickly say, is that this afternoon, Susan and I will have an extended <laughs> question time, so that after we've got our material presented, we can then have a longer period for discussion. Yes? Could I just ask about an aspect of the culture you didn't mention? Well, maybe some parts that come within your postmodernism. Right. Ten minutes. Sorry, a quarter of an hour around. Oh, good. Good. Sorry. George Excellent. George Carey in the front row, as always, is correcting me. We have a quarter of an hour. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. It, it's the place of feminism. Right. Within the, within the culture, um, intellectually and, and practically. Right. Can you just comment on that? Well, I think, I think all of us are conscious of the fact. Now, Susan will be dealing specifically with us. I, I mean, maybe she intends to. Do you have any intention to speak on that, Susan? I don't want to um, overlap too much. But um, I think all of us are conscious of the fact that there, there are legitimate uh, areas within the protest that has been raised, which is called feminist, the feminist movement. And, and we as Christians, with a very high view of the value, equal value, of, men, of women and men. Uh, going back to Genesis, again, this is where our, our rationale is so formidable in, in relation to the, the problems that confront us intellectually and in the culture, practically. Uh, biblically, you have that, that clear statement in the, in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, where you have the creation of man, male and female created he, they. So an equal value in terms of the image. Now, in respect to that, and also to, for example, the very high view within in, within Scripture that that women are held in, um, Jesus, for example, the revelation, the uh, uh, resurrection being communicated first to to, the, to women, the, the disciples who were women, put it like that. Uh, there is no way that we can come a, uh, uh, come to the sort of chauvinism that has characterized society generally, and sadly, many aspects of the church. And I think that has to be made absolutely clear. However, at the same time, I think the uh, identification of man as being the problem, if you like, a reverse chauvinism, uh, which in the extreme forms of the feminist movement is, is the, the great, you know, the, the problem, the sin, and that if this could just be overcome, is, is, is a sad um, um, echo of all of those uh, ideologies which have identified something which uh, has in, in fact been wrong but is not the great problem. The, the great problem confronting us is sin. Mm -hmm. And um, and that, you see, I think is, is, is overlooked mm -hmm. within the feminist movement. And so it, it um, I mean, there's so much we, one could say. Do you want to carry, take it further? Just, just one further thing, yeah. I think. That, that on the intellectual level, it seems to me that what a lot of intellectual feminists are doing is organising the universe around a polarity. That's right. And that's become the central distinction. Exactly. I mean, they, they would hold, of course, your, your idea that women are, are, are equally important. Right. But it's become the, the key to the universe now. Right. For them. Right. It's very, very sad. And in terms of all the practical consequences, I, I'm, I don't want to say more because I'm sure Susan will speak to this and also is much better qualified to speak to it. But I think the practical consequences, you know, inter-family life and so on. I read in the paper just two or three day days ago, maybe you saw it in the Times, uh, one of the uh, writers, uh, women writers, a journalist, was commenting on, on the rush that life has become for them and how they look back to their 
their parents or their grandparents' generation where while it was busy, it was not this frenetic rushing to the office, rushing here, rushing there, etc. And I think that, I mean, there's a lot that is, is involved in that. Yes? I'm just going to add, <coughs> add something. I'm sure this probably will come up later. <coughs> um, another criticism of feminist viewpoint seems to me to be a failure to recognize and acknowledge what I can only describe as the blessed complementarity yeah, that right. there is within God's creation of mm. man and woman mm. a, a real, well, a miraculous complement. Absolutely. A, a deep and profound mystery, mm. and, and it's awesome, really. And I feel that they are, that there's a wholeness in that, and that which mm. they don't recognize, they don't acknowledge, and which, well, I, I've, I've, it's, it's a tragedy. Mm. Um, I've never seen it really explored well um, mm. in any writing, but probably I haven't read the right books, but I, I find that's, a, <laughs> that's yes. another aspect of it, which is, I so agree with is, you. is, is, mm. is a tragic loss. I so agree. Yes. John? Uh, I was interested in what you said about the Christianizing <coughs> of society would move it from a polygamous one to a mm. monogamous one. Mm. Now, is that because they were taught polygamy is wrong, mm -hmm. or is that because uh, they picked up the message? Um, From our culture? You know, the, the, they picked up the message, they, they elevated in their minds the status of women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they got the feel of the relationship was supposed mm -hmm. to be one of love, rather than, you know, carrying the pans yes. and washing the dishes yes. and yes. producing children. Yes. In other words, man realized that woman mm. was to be respected for what mm. she was. And if that's the case, is, might it be the fact that we're moving away even from marriage? An explanation could be that we are losing respect mm. for the woman. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the feminist movement is not bringing the respect that they have looked for. It's quite the reverse, I think. But can I just comment? In the, it's, it's, an, it's an analogous situation. I remember reading uh, one of the, uh, uh, the biography of uh, an Indian in the Amazon uh, basin who's a, a chief and at the same time a sor sorcerer, you know, witch doctor, whatever the term is, and uh, very schooled and skilled in the occult and so on. And he was finally converted. Um, through a colleague of my brother-in-law. That's how I got to get this book. It's called Cannibal, Cannibal Chief, I think it's called. And, um, and ha becoming a Christian, steadily, he realized the importance of privacy. Now, you see, I, I, I use this as an analogy, the respect of woman, the whole concept of privacy. Now, you see, if you go to pagan cultures, you will not have the concept of privacy, uh, anything... Uh, that is respected. And it's one of the most debilitating things to them. Now, of course, the opposite, i.e. of a total isolation, individualism, etc., and the loss of that concept of sharing your family that the Bible talks about is so important. The elders must be hospitable and so on. But if you don't have a private home within which to be hospitable, then how are you going to um, establish this unit which is called the family? And you see, I think here is an aspect of a husband shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and they will make a single new unit. But I, just to, to close that, what I'm saying is that there are so many things which we just take for granted, which come out of our Christian heritage, which the Bible doesn't spell out in so many words, you know, and, and there are a complex of things. But he was living in one of these long huts, you know, where all, all the tribe, etc., clan, were gathered together and slept at night and so on. And he just realized he wasn't able to raise his family in the fear and admonition of the Lord, as it says, outside of the, within such a context, with everyone just wandering around here, there, and everywhere. And he had to have at least something, so he built another hut. First person to have done it. I think it's very interesting. So I'd just like to ask a question. Um, it's not from just from without the church that the attacks come on the family. Uh, as you probably know, there was an article written by a mother's union member who spoke about um, the idolization of the family mm -hmm. and also its stifling effect. Mm -hmm. I wonder how you react to those comments. I think it just shows the degree to which um, the, the other, the humanistic view 
has encroached into the into the church, as as in so many other ways, you know, like doctrinally, no resurrection and things like that. This atmosphere, the ethos of the culture, the feminist uh, view, I think, um, included within that, has affected the mothers' union, and very very sadly so. Um, yeah. Yet one more threat that one has to, to confront. I mean, I think, as I've already said it, there, there is a danger of idolizing the family as if the family is just a closed unit, what's called the nuclear family, and you get this picture of them you know, removed from life. And, and some, churches, some Christians have, have that as a danger. The three hands now. Brian? Um, I work for social services and mm. such. I receive a copy of Unison magazine, mm. a recent issue that this glowing picture of two women and a child, mm. and the article was basically a testimony of these um, these two women lesbians' relationship and happy life together. An interesting little anecdote, and it was an apology from the child's teacher that there hadn't been time to make two Mother's Day cards. I, I frantically tried to prepare for um, for lunch times as to how, in fact, I would, I would approach a critique of that. I, I wonder how you would begin. A critique of two lesbians? Yes, in the context, in the context of, say, a social work office. Of, of a relationship. Very, yes, yeah. where, where people are very committed. I think you've got two issues here. You've got your practical difficulty that you are a social worker and working within a certain system. And uh, just like a teacher would be working within a school and a nurse within a hospital <coughs> and so on. And that sets... Uh, limitations upon you and also um, involves you in questions of um, discernment as to <coughs> how best to tackle this this problem in that in that context I can't speak very easily to that because I don't know the environment in which you're working but I imagine it would be very very difficult to do so but the in terms of the theoretical issue if you like um, I think the, the, the Bible is quite clear that a, a lesbian relationship, like that's what I meant by, by saying it's, it's all promiscuity which is excluded in Scripture. Uh, any relationship like a lesbian relationship would, would be included within that. How would you begin to proceed with the argument? Well, again, in, a, in, con in confrontation, <laughs> it's a hard word, but with anyone, a uh, humanist, an atheist, uh, a Hindu, a Muslim, etc. How you actually proceed it has, is to be determined by each individual instance and where you are and how much time you've got. I mean, there are lots of factors like that. There's no cut and dried answer. But I would say one ought to challenge these fundamental concepts um, that that uh, exist within within the society, like, for example, the the philosophical framework and how do they establish value for example or right and wrong you see i think this is what everyone is majors is is echoing this everyone's beginning to say hey but bulger case and uh, how do you teach people right and wrong and well we need to ask the the, the question of, of lesbians but of, of anyone uh, what is the framework within which you you are working what what in the end is your right and wrong sexually but it, it applies to the whole of, of society. I've seen a number of hands. I'm going to take them, so be patient. Graham. Could uh, you expand on your observation that um, the church as an institution can take priority in an unhelpful way over yes. the family? Yeah, uh, the, the question is um, how can the church take um, precedence over the, the family? I think it's more just a practical thing. It's not a deliberate thing, it's just that um, in the desire to have a church which is functioning well and where fellowship is being attended to in Bible studies and so on and Sunday schools and, and uh, youth groups and so on and so forth, it just can get out of hand and the family, which is already quite pressured both economically and in, in terms of work, practically, and not meaning only the person who goes to work, but just the running of a home, I mean there's a lot of pressure. Just takes an enormous amount of work to live, we all say this, um, that the churches ought to be even more sensitive in this generation, I feel, to this dilemma. People traveling great distances, etc. And, and uh, take it into account as they plan their, their week. Now, someone came to visit us recently from a church nearby, and he was saying that what they've done is they've 
they've tried to put all their youth group and everything on one night. And even though it, the, the meetings are staggered, and you know, five o'clock, six o'clock, seven, o'clock, at least everyone's only involved in one night. And then the other nights of the of the week are free uh, for other things. We we did a similar thing in deciding we would have only one church service on a Sunday. Now, for many people, that's just you know, the beginning of liberalism. <laughs> but uh, but we did it very deliberately to try to counteract this feeling, like on a Sunday when people have had busy a busy life the rest of the week, that uh, the Sunday was just over overwhelmed, overshadowed by being in church. Not that it was all negative, but just got too much. Yeah. Can I just make a comment on what James just said? I'm sort of like in a, a good family unit, but I would like to come here and go to church and everything. My husband isn't so much mm -hmm. a Christian person, although he never stops me doing it. But if he did... I think I would certainly stand mm -hmm. by him rather than go with Christianity. You mean go with Christianity in the sense, not give up your Christian <coughs> if faith? Had, if he put his foot down and said, look, I don't want you to do these things anymore, I think rather than disrupting the family unit, I mm -hmm. would not do it. I, 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 I'm not quite sure what you're saying. I know but, it's wrong in one aspect, yeah. but as a family, I would rather have my family yeah. than to have... Christians. We had a, a woman in our church in, in that same position. She was converted at Labrie, and her f husband um, r forbade her to, to go to church. And so she had to, she had to, as it were, keep her faith underground, and she would go to the toilet to, to read her Bible. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like you're reading about Nepal or something, you know, where you get sent to prison. But uh, the psychological pressure can be enormous uh, in, in a situation like that. And then the way she handled it was just gently to push back for what she knew was right. And that was, she was able finally to come to church, and now it's not an issue. Um, she never lost sight, in other words, of what is right in this. And in the practical decision of how much, whether she would leave a Bible lying around in the house, for example, this was offensive to him. But she never gave up the priority which overarches everything else, and that is that it's God and not mother, father, husband, wife. Now, the relationship can never be broken. And that's where it's a practical decision. I mean, the relationship husband and wife can never be broken. And as he just says, out of the house. You know, this is the picture that you get in, in uh, the New Testament. But uh, short of that, there's, it's, it's a very serious crisis that a spouse faces. And how you handle it is very, very delicate. And uh, you need all the support you can get, but you should never lose the relationship either with... Uh, individual Christians or the church at large, I would say, and always be moving back to that, uh, pushing for it. There was a gentleman at the back there who has had a hand up for some time. I, I want to be fair to everybody. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Paul Green, uh, from Washington. Well, we're in school. Are we encounter um, conflicts that are involved in breaking marriages? Yeah. Children? And, uh, often, uh, philosophically, they're all messed up. Um, what I would like to ask is, in the light of Paul's uh, prophecy of end times, mm -hmm. where men will be lovers of self, haters of parents, etc., 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 there will be times of stress. Mm -hmm. It all paints a pessimistic picture. And what we have uh, heard tonight or, or this morning is uh, a pessimistic picture from the, uh, the secular side mm -hmm. or the modernist uh, uh, mm -hmm. philosophy. Um, but you did say there was uh, some, in all of that, uh, there is uh, optimism. Uh, after, after the implosion, there can be also an explosion mm -hmm. uh, of um, yep. spirituality. Mm -hmm. It has happened in the past. Absolutely. But in the light of uh, Paul's pessimistic picture, then times which we may be, you know, will be dogmatic, we may begin. Uh, is there um, a real optimistic hope these days of uh, what people talk about, national revival in Britain, on the basis of all this? Or is, is, is Are you asking, is it, is it possible or is it... Yes, is, 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 is there some hope? I mean, I think there is always hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I hope no one's taking what I've said as being pessimistic. I, I would rather speak of it as realistic. Why? Because you have these non-Christian uh, commentators actually spelling it all out for you. There it is. It's in black and white, you know. 
And it's so obvious. I mean, you'd have to be blind not to see it, okay? Now, that being the case, what do we do with it? And I, I feel that it's dangerous to read what Paul says about the end times. <coughs> not, not that it may not be that. And I am actually a premillennialist, which will probably raise um, all sorts of suspicions in your minds. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, I'm quite uh, clear about that uh, doctrinally. Um, but I don't focus on that. But in any event, even if it were, it doesn't release us from any of the responsibilities. So in other words, it doesn't change anything of what we're actually supposed to be doing. And so our, our uh, responsibility, Paul never had that philosophy. He says, uh, and those of us who are alive at that time, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, those of us who are alive, and what's he doing? He's out there, man. He's punching away. You yeah. can see the ears of the postman and he's twitching. We're not going to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, you wanted to say? No? Um, yeah. um, just a comment about the two lesbians. Right. Um, I, it may be simplistic, but if it takes a man and a woman, the seed and the essence, mm, to actually course. make a child, is that not the answer to people who actually think in a, a lesbian or homosexual situation that they have the right to bring up a child? Maybe it's mm. simplistic, but I think it's, it's certainly biblical that they have to have one man, one woman to make the child. Surely we should be actually promoting that within the social work situation. Well, there is that, and, and again, it, that is the basis, the foundation upon which the whole thing rests. In fact, in, in terms of the ethical guidelines for us in all of these uh, questions, it seems to me that that original, that's what I was trying to, to point to in, in showing the importance of what Jesus did at the marriage of Cana, showing the importance of marriage, etc., that original is the norm, the norm for all societies. And even where it's broken by God's people in the Old Testament, it's still recovered in the New, do you see? And hence, if it's true in, the, in that sense, then it, it, it covers uh, the, the relationship. But you see, there's also very strong statements about uh, um, homosexual relationships physically also. You know, so it's wrong from that point of view. We have to be strong, I think, in our answers back. And that means that we get flat. Exactly. We have to take that. Exactly so right. To stand up and be yeah. Now, how you stand up is, is what I was trying to say in my introduction there. Uh, there are ways that you could do it unnecessarily in ways that you have to do it. I remember Dr. Schaefer telling me when I went to King's London, which was liberal, he said, well, you've got to stand, Ronald, but that doesn't mean to say you have to stand up every time someone <laughs> says something which is liberal. You know? uh, you've got to stand. And I found, in praying about it, that the moments came when they were absolutely ripe. You know? when, when you just, it was, it was there, it was created for you. But, I mean, I... I I sat through lecture after lecture where the Bible was ridiculed, and I wasn't standing, you know, at each each moment. So it's a very difficult one for I feel for you in being in social work very much because the predominant a uh, atmosphere that surrounds you is inimical to the Christian view. It's very very difficult. So how you stand, but but that we must stand. And what I mentioned about about divorce, likewise, I think we have to start to toughen up. In, in all of these areas, because otherwise we just get dragged into this slide, which goes the opposite direction. Kirsty, I cut you off before. Oh, I'm sorry no, about no, that. All I was going to say was, <clears throat> obviously, in any Christian community, there are people with real, really thorny problems, mm. and it's important that right. um, you hold on one, on, in the one hand, the, the absolute ideal, but also that there is a sensitivity. Yeah, that's it. A real compassion. Mm -hmm. and um, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes approach to these problems. That's yeah. what I wanted to say. Right. No. That's what I'm trying to say myself. Yeah. <laughs> we have to be sensitive. Yeah, you used the right word. Yeah.